Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Liverpool Echo, Hull Daily Mail and Lancashire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside of the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. On this week's episode, we're getting a dose of local election fever as campaigning starts in earnest to elect councillors in town halls from Hartlepool in the northeast to Holton on Merseyside and dozens of other authorities in between. And if there's one man you can trust to give us a full, accurate lowdown on what to expect on May the 5th, it's Professor John Curtis, Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde and a regular fixture in TV studios during election night broadcasts. Speaking to our Westminster editor, Dan O'Donoghue, Sir John reveals why Boris Johnson could find himself performing worse than Theresa May when voters return to the ballot box in May. Now it's true, as we speak, the Conservatives are about three points behind Labour in the polls, so they're in a somewhat worse position than they were um, uh, four years ago, but not dramatically so and not uh, on a scale that one need to anticipate major Conservative losses. We may find that these local elections take place at a time when Partygate is back in the headlines. As we speak, it's just gone back into the headlines again. And we wait to see what impact that has on the Prime Minister's supporters. Now, as I've already said, actually, the Prime Minister is not having to defend that good a baseline, which should help him. But before we get to that, let's keep the election theme going by speaking to someone who's no stranger to the ballot box and going out on the election campaign trail. years, our guest today, Dan Jarvis, has occupied a unique position in British politics. Elected as Labour MP for Barnsley Central in 2011, since 2018 he's also been the only mayor in Westminster after voters in South Yorkshire chose him to be the first person to hold the elected position. It's been four years with no shortage of ups and downs, including wranglings over devolution arrangements with local leaders, dealing with the impact of Brexit, and of course, the last two years dominated by the pandemic, which has hit South Yorkshire hard. But after deciding last year to step down from his mayoral role to concentrate on being an MP and trying to get Labour back into power at the next general election, his time in office will be coming to an end in just a few weeks. So what better time to reflect on his time as South Yorkshire mayor and what the future might hold, both for him personally and the region where he's made his home. Dan, welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. Thank you. Like I say, only a few weeks to go now until uh, you leave your mayoral role and new mayor is elected. What's your overwhelming feeling now that your time as mayor is coming to an end? Is it relief, pride, frustration, or a mixture, mixture of all, all three? It's a mixture of all three of those things. I mean, I think the, the primary emotion is, is pride. I'm really proud of the progress that has been made. If you look back to where we were in 2018, I was the only mayor who was elected without a devolution deal in place. So I've had to fight very hard to get that agreement, agreement amongst, amongst the local authority leaders, agreement with national government, get that deal in place, unlock the powers, and unlock significant resource. So I'm really pleased that we've been able to do that. I think we've made massive progress, despite all of the pressures. I mean, I constructed a manifesto four years ago. I could never have envisaged the different challenges that I would have to face as the first mayor of South Yorkshire. But despite all of that, 
I think that we've shown that devolution works, that we need more of it and that we need to take it further. And that Metro mayors increasingly, I think, are seen as real champions for their communities. And the frustration, though, is that, of course, there are more things that I wanted to do. And I wish that I'd had a government nationally that was on my side a bit more uh, than they have been. But my overriding emotion is, is one of, of, of real pride in the, in the progress that's been made and the things that we've achieved. So to get into some more specifics, I mean, perhaps you could say, well, firstly, what would you say is your biggest achievement? What's the thing you've been most proud of that you've managed to do uh, since 2018 as mayor? I suppose you have to be honest about the fact that the, the biggest thing is, is actually getting the deal done. There wasn't agreement and now there is. And as a result of the agreement that we secured in South Yorkshire, hundreds of millions of pounds of new money uh, have come into our region. Of course, on the back of the agreement we reached, there was a devolution deal in West Yorkshire as well. So I think that the, the, the act of getting the arrangement in place and building hopefully very sound footings for the next mayor to, 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 to build further on is, is the greatest achievement. But there are other things as well. I mean, it's been really difficult, of course, the impact of COVID, sort of terrible for communities, terribly challenging for, for businesses. You know, I'm proud of the work that the Combined Authority did throughout those dark days, particularly during the, the early moments of the pandemic, where nobody quite knew what the future would bring. We did everything that we possibly could, working with the NHS, with the police, with our local council uh, colleagues and with the private sector to try and support businesses and communities. And I think that we were able to add real value to that process. I also um, I'm really proud of the progress that we've made in other areas. We put a huge amount of emphasis on transport. Again, the work that we've done around the buses has been in a very challenging environment, not least because of COVID. We put a massive emphasis on active travel. I've worked very closely with Dame Sarah's story and we've revolutionised active travel in South Yorkshire. But I think the things that I'm really excited about and hope very much that they will continue is the new stuff. It's the innovative things that weren't happening before. So I was always clear I didn't want to just build a bigger economy. I wanted to build a better, more inclusive economy. So we've set up a unique partnership, which we've called the Ownership Hub, working with Co-ops UK, working with the employee ownership to drive forward the number of companies that are employee owned. I think there are huge opportunities for developing a more inclusive economy. It's something that I'm really proud of. It's something that I think will happen right around the country on the back of the work that we've done. So it's been hard going. There have been many challenges. I'm the only Labour MP who's had the opportunity to serve in government over the past four years. And looking back, despite everything, I'm really pleased with, with what we've been able to do with it. Now, you said there have been some frustrations as well. I mean, it's not a secret that not all mayors have uh, a great relationship with central government and some to different extents. But I mean, are, are there things that you would have liked to have been able to achieve that you haven't because of you know the attitude that central government has taken or for, for other reasons? Like, what are your big frustrations over, over the last four years? I think one of my frustrations is, despite the fact that the prime minister said to me, because he'd been a mayor, he got what the mayors do and he was supportive of the devolution agenda. He hasn't really followed up on that and, that, and that's been a great shame. I actually welcomed the appointment of Michael Gove into the new DLUC appointment because I thought that did provide an opportunity for government to really kick on and start making the most of the opportunities that devolution offers. If the government are serious about levelling up, 
they're not going to do it without the mayors. So they need to be working very closely with us in order, in order to deliver the transformational change that, that we all want to see. And we're the best place to do that. You're not going to level up the north of England from behind a desk in Whitehall. If you're going to level up, you're going to have to do it working very closely with the mayors and with the local authorities. Now, I think Michael Gove, to be fair to him, he gets that in a way that other senior cabinet ministers do not. But progress has been slow. We've got a white paper now, and that is a, an important step forward. But what we haven't yet got is the transformative levels of resource to match the ambition that is contained within the white paper. So the big disappointment, I have to say, in all of this has been the Chancellor, who is a Yorkshire MP, who's had ample opportunity to engage and to invest in the hugely exciting plans that we collectively have as mayors. But we just haven't seen that investment forthcoming. And I think that that is a real missed opportunity. And I really hope that the government will, will not lose sight of the value that mayors can add. And I hope when it comes to it, they'll put their money where their mouth is. But so far, they haven't done that. You get the impression from the, the noises coming out of the Treasury. Uh, Simon Clark, uh, Rishi Sunak's deputy, gave a speech this week where he described last autumn's budget statement as being the, the high, high watermark for fiscal spending for his government, which suggests that they're not likely to uh, open up the taps and start giving mayors like yourself much more money in, in the years to come because they have so many other things to concentrate on. I mean, do, do you feel optimistic that the things that you're d describing, you know, giving mayors more powers and more funding to shape their own communities, that that's actually going to happen? Or are we going to go into the next election in two years or whenever, sort of with all these issues still, you know, as they are and as they have been for, you know, in recent times? We'll have to see where we get to. I think... Um... All of us as mayors understand the very challenging financial circumstances that national government are operating in. Of course we do. And it isn't always just about the quantum of the resource required. Sometimes it's about the way in which it's done. So along with the other mayors, we've long made the argument that there are all these different pots of funding. So there are so many different applications that I've had to put forward as mayor, you know, different pots, different terms and conditions, all of them determined by the priorities of Whitehall and not priorities that are agreed at a local and regional level by mayors and local councils. That is the wrong approach. Now, again, to be fair to Michael Gove, I think he recognises that that is the wrong approach, that the funding pots that are available need to be brought together. There needs to be a much greater devolution of the funding, much greater onus needs to be put on the mayors to account for, for that spend based on their priorities. That's what devolution should be about, not kind of competing with your neighbours to get relatively small pots of, of money that come with often onerous terms and conditions. Of course, public funding has to be accountable and we have to account for that money. Of course we do. But the government, I think, needs to be much bolder and much better at giving resource to mayors and letting them get on and do the job that they've been elected to do. What I suspect we will see in advance of the next general election is a sprinkling of resource in the places and at the point that the government think that it will deliver the maximum political return for them. I think that's the sort of political reality. That's the world we're living in. Clearly, I don't think that that is the right approach. Clearly, I think that there is massive potential untapped in the north of England. And I think my, my great frustration in, in all of this is those of us who live in the north, those of us who are passionate about it as a place, 
understand how much more we could do with a bit of additional support from government. That's in our interests, of course it is, here in the North. But it's also for the wider benefit of the whole country. You know, Britain is never going to be truly successful as a country unless we unlock the huge potential that exists within the North that successive generations of politicians have failed to unlock. The IRP, again, is a, bit, a, a big disappointment because that was a once-in-a-generation opportunity to bring forward the transformative levels of investment we need to see in our public transport system. The government made all sorts of promises about what they were going to do, but in the end, they didn't make good on those commitments. So I think there's a lot of work for this government to do to be taken credible when it comes to levelling up. And if they're really serious about it, and if they want to make rapid progress, they need to work more closely with the mayors than has been the case over the past few years. Now, talking about the IRP, obviously the integrated rail plan, setting out the the government's future plans for big rail uh, infrastructure schemes. I mean, in the in the short term, you, I know in in recent times you've been very vocal about the cuts that we've seen to local bus services, local train services, post-pandemic, and that that has been a big cause for concern. It it must be a frustration that we're still having these conversations about cuts to vital transport links, so the similar ones to the ones we were having when you became mayor and long before that, even if it's you know different reasons for, for the cuts this time. It, it's We're still having those same conversations, aren't we, about people not being able to get to work and how northern transport links just aren't, aren't, aren't good enough. It is frustrating, and I think sometimes politicians have this debate in the abstract. The reality is if your bus is late or it's dirty or it doesn't turn up at all, that has a very significant effect on your working day. And every single day, without exception, I get feedback from my constituents, the public come forward and they tell me that the train's late or the bus hasn't arrived. And that is a huge frustration for many, many people. We've done such a lot of work at a local level to try and improve our services, but it's been incredibly challenging. COVID, of course, has been massively difficult to manage from a public transport point of view. But I think one of the frustrations I have, and I acknowledge that the government have made some progress, so I wouldn't want to be overly churlish about it. But I, I do remember that the, the Prime Minister famously giving an interview about his passion for buses, and he was talking about painting buses and... Then we had the, the, the publication of the National Bus Strategy. But the truth of the matter is the, the process of the Bus Service Improvement Plan, the levelling up process, the National Bus Strategy has not yet unlocked any meaningful resource for me as a Metro Mayor to improve our, our services. So if you want a better bus service, you can do that, but you have to pay for it. I have to find that money from somewhere. I can't take it off the local authorities because they've had significant cuts imposed upon them. So there isn't additional funding that they can put in. So I have to be drawing down that money from, from national government. Now, because of the importance that I attach to public transport, I have taken other pots of funding and invested it into the buses or invested it in, in, into active travel schemes because I thought that that was the right thing to do. But that's not how it should be. We invested a huge amount of time bringing forward a levelling up fund bid, which was focused around improving our bus services. We did it so it was designed to meet the objectives that the government set around net zero, around public transport, buses in particular, and around the levelling up agenda. It was by any metric a really good bid that we put forward to national government, but it was unsuccessful. So that is hugely frustrating for us, where there is this huge will at our end 
to improve the services, to get organized, to be able to accommodate resource so we can make a real, real difference. And then that money has not been unlocked. We put a huge amount of effort into drawing together a bus service improvement plan. A lot of work and effort went into that. We submitted that, I think it was back in September of last year. We're nearly into April. We still don't have the result from national government as to, as to whether we're gonna get any funding to support it. So the process is too slow, it is too unwieldy. The government needs to do much more to unlock resource to go into public transport because you know, we all accept that public transport is such an important part of, of public life. If we're serious about meeting the climate change objectives that we've agreed and that have been agreed nationally, we've got to go further and faster. We've got the basis of investable plans at a city region level, but we just need government to unlock the results. Looking to the future, obviously, the reality of your current situation is you're, you're doing two jobs at the same time, which comes with its challenges and, of course, criticism from some quarters. I mean, are there issues or causes that you hope that you'll be able to devote more time to once you're concentrating solely on being MP for Barnsley, Barnsley Central? Well, let me just firstly address the, the, the two jobs issue directly, because I, I have come in for quite a lot of criticism from that, um, including from people on my own side uh, of the political divide as well. I'm absolutely convinced that it was the right thing to do, to step forward in good faith, to sort out the devolution arrangement in South Yorkshire. That was the basis of my candidacy. I said that I'd get a deal done. Uh, and, and I did. It's been personally quite difficult for me uh, because there have been moments where, you know, I wasn't entirely sure whether I should be in Sheffield, Barnsley or Westminster. But that's the same dilemma that a government minister has. You know, a government minister is also a constituency MP. The only difference is, of course, they, they get paid for doing it. And there wasn't a salary uh, to begin with uh, as, as the mayor. So undoubtedly, it's been um, quite a challenging period for me personally. You know, I've had to work incredibly hard. I've been well supported by my members of staff. But I always said it wasn't going to be a long-term arrangement and I meant it. So whilst I think it was absolutely the right thing to do to step forward and take on that additional commitment at what was an absolutely critical moment for South Yorkshire, I also think it's the right thing to do at this point to stand aside and let somebody else take on the mayoralty and drive it forward. So I'm entirely convinced not everyone will be i know but i'm entirely convinced that what i did which i accept was controversial and a bit different was the right thing to do i'm also i have to say look, looking forward to to life the other side and looking forward to being able to focus on some of the things that i, I really care about uh, in parliament i mean i will want to continue to fight the corner for my constituents of course that's what i'm there to do but also the wider region and the wider north I've learned a huge amount from being in government, from taking decisions, from allocating resources, from getting things done, from working with lots of different people from all different political parties and working very closely with the business community as well. So I hope that that gives me a perspective which will be useful when it comes to these issues in Parliament. I also um, you know, want to continue talking about important matters relating to defence and national security, like everybody else. I'm hugely concerned by the unfolding situation in Ukraine. I think it's incredibly important that we, um, as, as a country, uh, seek to make a, a, a responsible contribution to the process of secure, securing peace and stability 
not just in the region, but in, 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 you know, amongst the, the wider international partners. I think Britain does have an important role as a force for good in the world. And these are areas that I have a longstanding interest and will want, want to continue to, to contribute to. So I will support the next mayor, whoever it is. Clearly, I have a strong preference, but whoever is the next mayor of South Yorkshire, I will want them to be successful because I've invested a huge amount of my life, you know, four years of blood, sweat, toil, and a few tears along the way as well over the past four years. Uh, we've made great progress, but there's much more to be done. And whoever it is can count on my support. And if they want my advice, then I'd be very happy to give it to them. And finally, it's been blood, blood, sweat, toil and, and tears, as you, as you said. But is there anything you're going to miss about being the elected mayor of South Yorkshire? Well, the, the, there are lots of things that I'm going to miss. You know, I, I, I'm going from you know, a leadership position where I'm making decisions, where I'm in a privileged position to make a real difference at a local and a regional level. You know, I, I won't have that opportunity in the same way uh, that I did. So, so I will miss that very greatly. I'll also miss the people. Um, it's been a huge pleasure to work so closely with the other mayors. Tracy Brabin, in particular, you know, is a great colleague, a neighbour, a great friend, a force of nature. I mean, I'll keep in touch with Tracy, of course I will. But I've really enjoyed that partnership working across Yorkshire and the partnership with the local authority leaders across the Yorkshire region. You know, I think there is a huge amount that we can do collectively across Yorkshire. And I'll certainly want to continue to, to think about how, how we could do that uh, in the future. Dame Sarah Story, um, it's been a privilege to work with her. She's done a brilliant job for us um, when it comes to active travel. Um, so, so I will miss the people. I'll miss the relationships that I've built up over the past number of years. I'll miss that opportunity to serve the wider county. But as I say, it's the right thing to do. All good things come to an end. I'm pleased and proud of what's been achieved, but it's time now to move on to passages new. And I look forward to continuing to serve my constituents in Barnsley Central. Dan Jarvis, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Voters will head to the polls in May to elect more than 4,000 local councillors across England. In the north, Barrie, Rochdale and St Helens will be all re-electing their whole councils, while in places like Manchester, Newcastle and Barnsley, a third of council seats will be up for grabs. South Yorkshire will also see the election of new Metro Mayor as Dan Jarvis steps down. The last time most of these seats were contested in 2018, it was a vastly different political landscape. Theresa May was still in number 10 and the word coronavirus was not something really discussed outside the research community. With me now to discuss how the parties might fare is polling guru, Professor Sir John Curtis. Sir John, welcome. Good afternoon. Perhaps if we could just start with what your general sense uh, of how the major parties might perform. Well, as you said, the elections in England were last fought over in 2018 for the most part. There are some exceptions to that, but in most places it's 2018. And the truth is the first rule of local elections, and I'm saying local elections, is to remember the baseline. The baseline is not December 2019 when Boris Johnson was 13 points ahead of Labour. It was May 2018 when, actually according to the BBC's estimate of how well the parties performed in the local elections, probably Conservative and Labour 
were pretty much neck and neck, and certainly in the polls at the time, the Conservatives had no more than a couple of points lead. So that's crucial point number one. Now, it's true, as we speak, the Conservatives are about three points behind Labour in the polls, so they're in a somewhat worse position than they were um, uh, four years ago, but not dramatically so, and not uh, on a scale that one lead to anticipate major Conservative losses, given in particular point number two, which is that most of the places where elections are taking place, they are disproportionately Labour. I mean, if you take the council controls, for example, um, there are slightly more of them at places where Labour were in control than are places where the Conservatives uh, were in control uh, outside of London and within London itself. Uh, London is now very much a one party Labour state. Um, and then bear in mind that in most places, only one third of the seats are up for grabs. So actually, the room for actual councils to change control is pretty limited. Labour already uh, primarily on the defensive, particularly much of the north of England. Uh, Labour's position not that much stronger than it was uh, four years ago, and only one of the thirds of the seats up for grabs. So against this backdrop, I don't think we should necessarily be expecting dramatic changes uh, in the party tallies, and certainly probably very little in the way of actual changes of control from one party to another. Obviously, at the last general election, a lot was made of the supposed red wall falling uh, to Boris Johnson. I mean, do you think we'll see any of that stuff mirrored in the local elections at all? Well, again, the baseline matters because uh, these elections were held in 2018, last round elections, by which time how well the parties were performing in local elections was beginning to be affected by Brexit. And given that at the moment, the link between how people voted in the EU referendum and their current party preference is roughly in line with, the, with the, how that relationship was back in the 2017 general election and is weaker than it was in 2019. Um, actually, we may discover that the Brexit status of an area doesn't make much difference to the extent to which party support is up uh, and down, because uh, we're, we might well be comparing with a rather similar Brexit background. Certainly when it comes to major headlines, I've done quite a search. I have struggled to find very much in the way of red wall conservative held councils that are likely to change. The one I can find is Newcastle under Lyme, where exceptionally we've got a whole council uh, election and where again exceptionally the Conservatives gained control actually just a few months ago as a result of the defection of independent councils. So that a, a, an exception very much uh, in terms of the nature of the contest, probably a very different, uh, difficult council for the Conservatives to defend, um, even though they won the parliamentary constituency. But otherwise, you know, some of those other places, you know, like, like, like the people talk about, frankly, they are either already in Labour's hands um, or there aren't enough seats up for grabs to be much in the way of control. And you mentioned, obviously, people love a headline from any uh, local elections, but do you think a, a poor performance for Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer should really worry them in the long term? Is it more just a, you know, a short-term painful headline rather than mirroring any kind of actual trends in, in voter patterns? Well, of course... Um, we may find that these local elections take place at a time when 
Partygate is back in the headlines as we speak. It's just gone back into the headlines again. And we wait to see what impact that has on the Prime Minister's forces. Now, as I've already said, actually, the Prime Minister is not having to defend that good a baseline, which should help him. Um, and uh, to that extent, at least, perhaps these local elections aren't going to be as crucial to his fortunes as we might imagine. Now, I, you know, it depends, frankly, on how badly the Conservatives do. If the Conservatives are still running at around the equivalent of around 33% of the vote, they're a couple of points down on where they were in 2018. Uh, yes, they're behind Labour, but one would say, well, frankly, this is not that surprising for a government that's been in power for what now two and a half years we're pretty much halfway uh, through this parliament labor were to do badly in contrast i think the truth is we have got to a point where labor begin to need to be able to demonstrate that they can can actually gain the um support of the electorate it's only in the last two or three months really since partygate broke that for the first time, Labour have been consistently ahead of the Conservatives in the polls. And even then, that largely reflects a decline in Conservative fortunes. Labour still, at best, have been running at 40%, which they were at 12, uh, just over 12 months ago, and no more than 38% now. And last year's local elections, which coincide with the Hartlepool by-election, when Labour actually did disappointingly badly and they went backwards in the polls, was certainly a substantial hiccup into Labour's recovery. So in a sense, probably the expectations for Labour have to be set higher than they are for the Conservatives. Though, of course, given it is another two and a half years, potentially to the next election, an awful lot of water can flow off under an awful lot of bridges before we eventually see how the, how the parties are going to be uh, lining up uh, by the time of the next general election. Now, obviously, as well as the uh, local council elections in England, we've also got elections in the Northern Ireland Assembly, which we mentioned Brexit earlier, um, obviously massive impact there. Those elections may well end up having a bigger bearing longer term on the future of Boris Johnson and the Tories than whatever results are uh, local councils in England, perhaps. Certainly, the UK government's difficulty in reaching an accommodation over the Northern Ireland Protocol that is both acceptable to the European Union, to the Northern Irish Unionists, and indeed to itself, doesn't look as though it's necessarily going to be made any easier. The truth is that the position of the DUP in Northern Ireland has been seriously weakened um, by the way in which, frankly, um, their position, I mean, Boris Johnson, many people would say probably double-crossed the DUP in coming to the agreement that he did with the then T-shirt then uh, over Northern Ireland. Um, and the fact that there is now that border, quote-unquote, down the Irish Sea, has not done the DUP any good. And therefore, the unionist vote is fragmented. As a result of that, there is a serious prospect that Sinn Féin will have most votes. And if they do have most votes and therefore most seats in the Assembly, then they will have the right to claim the, uh, the position of first minister. Um, now, the position of first minister and deputy first minister are equally powerful, but symbolically they are not. And there will certainly be question marks about the, well, a, number one, it will mean that not only in Scotland 
do we have a first minister who wishes to leave the United Kingdom? We will have a first minister in Northern Ireland whose long-term preference is to leave the United Kingdom. That doesn't make life any easier for the UK government. But more immediately, it may well mean that if the administration does not get formed in Belfast because the DUP will not be willing to uh, take the deputy first minister position um, until the Northern Ireland protocol has been resolved in a more satisfactory direction than they want. The trouble is, what Sinn Féin want in the way of revised Northern Ireland Protocol? Not much. They're quite happy with it, as are most nationalists. This is a problem for the unionist community, and it's the unionist community that's become deeply politically fragmented as a result of what's happened over that protocol. So it sounds like potentially the story of the day and the night might not actually be from the uh, local uh, council elections in England, but rather a bit further afield from across the UK. Well, I think certainly the most immediate political difficulty may well come from Northern Ireland. The most immediate symbolic difficulty, however, might still come much closer to home. Um, there are a couple of councils in London where there are whole council elections, where the, the Conservatives are vulnerable. One is Barnet. Well, in truth, the Conservatives are only really in control of Barnet because of the row about anti-Semitism inside the Labour Party. Barnet has a very large Jewish community and Labour failed to regain Barnet in uh, 2018. But the other is Wandsworth. Now, Wandsworth has been held by the Conservatives since 1978. It's often been held successfully against the tide, including not least in 1990, uh, where the defence of Wandsworth together with Westminster was successfully spun by the then Conservative chairman, uh, 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 Mr Baker, um, to persuade people that actually the Conservatives weren't doing that badly in the polls and that Margaret Thatcher should remain Prime Minister. Well, of course, eventually uh, Margaret Thatcher was dethroned, but that has meant that Westminster has become part of the iconography of the Conservative Party and particularly of Thatcherism. So although substantively, one might say really what's surprising because London is now so much more of a Labour city than it was back in 1978, the Conservatives, if they lose West, will lose Wandsworth, might just make some Conservative MPs be a little bit more than perhaps they necessarily need to be. But of course, at the end of the day, it's Tory MPs that Boris Johnson has to worry about so far as his future as Prime Minister is concerned. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. 